everybody welcome to friday happy friday episode 66 anthony marco jason martinez episode 66 of stick to hockey live what's going on Ant? not too much buddy uh dust is finally settling on a big week in flyer land uh last uh friday actually so we've had one week to digest it since we've last spoke and uh a lot of change a lot of change yeah it's crazy that it's, it's now been a week and I've Jonesy on Flyers Daily today, but I'm not going to act like it's some kind of exclusive because those guys have been everywhere yeah, over the time. last week. Yeah, I remember on Friday, he actually went on TSN Radio in Toronto, mm-hmm. uh, 1050 on uh, Overdrive. They do, I, I would say quite confidently, that's the best sports talk show in Canada. And he really gave some insight, but there's been like a consistent themes that Jonesy has been bringing up. And it seems that he really wants to work on that back end long term. Yeah. And he, he said, uh, you know, build from the blue line out. It's from the goalie out, essentially, when you're saying that. But um, yeah, I mean, look at, you know, look at a team like Carolina, their back end. Amazing. The reason why they're still alive is their back end. But um, before we get to the Flyers and Jonesy and Briere and everything, I mean, that game last night was just <laughs> bananas. And these playoffs and <clears throat> have convinced me that first and foremost, that, you know, these expansion teams and with the pandemic kind of smashed around when they came into the league have really helped them build teams because you they have so much depth and the game is so much about depth. But what it really tells me watching these playoffs over the last couple of years is that you got to build a team that's a playoff team and then you're probably going to have to tweak it once you become a playoff team and you find out who's a playoff performer and who's not because you're seeing it in Toronto. You're seeing it in Edmonton. You've seen it in Tampa. You're seeing it now in Florida. I mean, they had Hubert you know, last year was up for a heart and they go out and they swing that huge deal to get, you know, a guy like Kachuk, who's an absolute animal. And now they're a playoff team. Yeah, and you know Toronto in like obviously let's talk about them because they're under the microscope so glowingly right now. You know, they're a team that it would be harder to find a better four pack in terms of just pure skill than those four guys. And I don't blame Kyle Dubas or Brendan Shanahan for really trying to make that work because it is actually quite remarkable the talent that they were able to assemble when they brought over John Tavares, the Austin Matthews selection, Marner, Matthew, uh, Nylander. But when you're all cut from the same cloth like that and there's no variation to what your top six is bringing you, I think that you may have to look for something different. And you reference Florida. Like, I mean, Jonathan Huberto had more points than Matthew Kachuk last year. A lot of people would have said last year at this time that he was the better offensive player. And then in addition to that, you're giving up Mackenzie Weger who yeah. a lot of people felt was their best defenseman for a lot of years because of how long Ekblad had been in and out of injury problems and what a deal it's proven to be. And look, they hit the skids for a while this year. You know, I think their record was worse than it showed because of the goaltending. Now you're seeing what they're getting in net and what kind of team they look like. But sometimes it's not about getting, and I know this is a cliche. I, I think Herb Brooks said it in the Miracle movie. But it is really true that sometimes you don't need the best players. You need the right ones. And for 
for the Florida Panthers, they had to move on from some maybe some higher end skill to bring in a guy. And Kachuk is still insanely skilled, but he brings those intangibles. He brings some bite. He can play a different way. Then you even look at a guy like Nick Cousins. Nick Cousins, yeah. a dirty man, fourth liner, and all of a sudden he's playing on Florida's most productive line and really kind of feeding off of that bite and that hard forechecking game of Sam Bennett and Matthew Kachuk. So it goes to show you that the game really does change the playoffs. Yeah, it's so different. And if you want to have success there, <clears throat> then then her books was right. It's not about having all of the talent, but it's, ha- it's having a team that you know can position itself to be there but then when it get there, like you mentioned, Florida went through, you know, some some peaks and valleys this year after winning the president's trophy last year. But so much more equipped to go through round by round of the playoffs. And Bobrovsky's been he's been excellent. Um, let's talk about the Leafs real quick, though, because, you know, Dubas is now <clears throat> excuse me. One of my voice is a little shot, but Dubas is now kind of weighing his options. And re- I think really threw a wrench into the into the process here for the Toronto Maple Leafs. But the element of this that I think is really interesting is the cross-section of Dubas, the Leafs, Austin Matthews in his contract, and now the Arizona Coyotes. Because I think maybe there was a notion for Austin Matthews, if Kyle Dubas left and I decided I wasn't going to extend there, I could go home. But there's an ele- a couple elements of that now that are not available and it doesn't look like he's going to be able to go home and play in Arizona. So, I, I mean, all the different ramifications that are, at, you know, in front of the Leafs here are uh, insane because I think that Austin Matthews has a lot of trust in Kyle Dubas. And if they move on from him, I don't know that he's extending before July 1st or they know they have that commitment. You know, obviously we've heard about maybe Matthews wants to go home in the case that Dubas leaves, but I honestly think, and I was told to this by a GM uh, back in October, I believe it was, that LA is the place that I think he would want to go. Close and enough to home. <laughs> exactly. And you're playing in a massive market on a good up-and-coming team. And aside from that, you know, it lines up perfectly when Anzi Kopitar's contract expires. Yeah. Now, I think Kopitar is a king for life, to be honest with you. But he's probably not going to be making, I think he makes, what, $10 million right now, if I'm not mistaken. So if Kopitar, let's say, goes down to something in the range of Couturier, maybe over eight in that range, and the cap shoots up to close to 90 million, maybe they have enough money to hand $15 million over to Austin Matthews. And like you said, I think a lot depends on what happened with Kyle, what happens with Kyle Dubas. And I got to be honest with you, I was a big um, critic of Kyle Dubas for a lot of years because of his philosophy. But, you know, give him credit where credit is due. He has really, in my opinion, tried to compensate for what the top end players lacked. And I really liked his trade deadline. You know, Luke Shen played a hell of a a role for them. O'Reilly, I think, was okay. Like, not incredible, but I think did enough. Noel Achari, Sam Lafferty. And then you hear at his end of season press conference that he said everything's on the table. So, like, he's a young guy and you're not going to go through the Zito trade, the Huberdo Kachuk trade. (laughs) and he's a really smart guy and he gets a job really young here i think he was in his early 30s and good on him for recognizing his mistakes and learning from it you know like not every coach and general manager is gonna be perfect throughout like you know i hear a lot like oh well look at dave hacks look how good of a coach he is now and i'm just like look like 
coaches can learn. Like it was possible that he was a mediocre coach here. I don't think he was as bad as people thought, but he obviously improved. I even think the same could be said for Chief. I didn't think Chief was very good here, but obviously he's done a hell of a job in St. Louis. So for Kyle Dubas, I think it's really good on him right now for really learning from his mistakes and looking to improve. Yeah, and you know one of the things that Hack was obviously criticized for when he was the coach of the Flyers was always so stoic. He has no emotion. Like I can, I, I try to tell people at that time. Like I can assure you, he's very emotional. But the captain of the ship doesn't freak out when he's at the at the con. You know what yeah. I mean? Because yeah. then everybody starts freaking out. Um, look, some coaches coach that way. You know, John Tortorella coaches with a lot of emotion and shows his emotion on the bench. Some Peter Laviolette was the same way. A lot of guys yeah. do, but some guys don't. And there's no one way to do it for sure. And the Hack had a great year, got that team to a game seven in the second round. I mean, with with no top line players, maybe Matty Beneers, you could say is. But, um, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen in Toronto. Um, but what I do know is that when Dubas said that, that this year took a lot out of him and his family. Um, some people think it's a power play. Um, I, whether it's a power, you know, a negotiation tactic or not, I think it helps him. The assumption was Pittsburgh is where he would go. I don't think he's going to Pittsburgh. I don't think Pittsburgh's an attractive job. There's a lot of guys that, from what I've heard um, from reporting, is a lot of guys have turned down the Penguins to even talk to him. Would you want to go there as your first GM job when you've been it, saddled with an, an extremely aging Malkin, an aging Latang, and God, I mean, look, I know that he's got the stroke situation, but not a lot of organizational currency or prospects. What is that a place you'd want to go? Is that a, is that an attractive job other than it's one of 32? Well, the other thing you have to consider here is that Mike Sullivan has so much power in that organization. Mm -hmm. And, for, like and we kind of saw it here in Philadelphia that when you're looking to hire an executive and you're giving him employees that he doesn't really have a say on, it may change the way that they view that position. Like Mike Sullivan's one of the ones leading this general manager search, or at least helping if, in it, if I'm not mistaken. And you have a core three of Crosby, Malkin, and Latang, to your point, that probably have no interest in rebuilding. So you can't bring in a GM and or president to say, okay, well, this is my direction. I want to start over. They're basically saying, this is where we want to get to. Like, these are the players you're saddled with. This is the coach you're saddled with. You just have to make our plan work. And I think that's why yeah. it may not be as attractive as many would have hoped. And, you know, Pittsburgh comes with a lot of, I think that organization comes with just like a lot of aura about it for what they've done the last 15 years, going back to the Mario Lemieux era. But it's just, it's a tough, I guess, bill to sell to someone because of what you're dealing with. And then that's why you hear like guys like Dave Nonis being in interviewed. Like yeah. I never thought I'd see him get into that job again, but now here he is. So I do agree with you that that isn't a conventional GM job that would maybe be highly sought after. I mean, there's been a lot of analytics guys that have been rumored. John Chike is one. <clears throat> um, another one obviously is Eric Tolsky. Look, here's the fact of the matter, in my opinion. If you're going to continue the plan that's in place with what they have, you're not going to succeed. In today's NHL, saddled with what they're saddled with, they can't win. They can't. They can't continue the path they're on and get back to being a Stanley Cup contender. They can't. It's not possible. This league's got 32 teams now, and there's roughly 200 NHL players right now that 
15 years ago wouldn't be in the league yeah, because there's more teams and more jobs. So building a team with depth is harder than ever before. And I don't think it's a mistake that three of the teams in the conference final are no income tax states. That makes it easier. I mean, people don't want to hide the fact that, you know, oh, that doesn't really matter. Bullshit. Every penny counts in a salary cap and building depth. To me, depth is depth and goaltending is like the two must haves if you want to go win a cup. You have to. You can't screw it up. And not to say that you need the best goalie in the league. It certainly helps, but you need to go on a heater. Yeah, you need a guy who could give you consistency between the pipes. And, like, look at maybe LA's the exception to the rule. They've used, what, five goalies? They have eight in Hill right now. But I think Bruce Cassidy has done a hell of a job there coaching really good defensive hockey. They have a very underrated blue line with Pietrangelo and Theodore and Martinez and McNabb. Like, they have a really big back end. And then you look at a guy like Jack Eichel, who I think has gone under the radar here and has had a pretty good playoff yes, yeah. in his first kick at the can in the postseason. And then you obviously Dallas, I think Miro Heiskanen, like we talk about Makar, we talk about Yossi, we talk about Hedman. I think Miro Heiskanen is just a bit as good as them. I just don't yeah. think he does it in flashy ways. You know, the guy's playing 30 minutes a night with his eyes closed. And maybe he's not the most like flashy guy, like I just said, like a Yossi or a Makar, but I think he's a caught like he's obviously not Niedermeyer, but he has that kind of vibe about him. Yeah, he's quite a quiet player. Yeah, very quiet player. And I find that now that Klingberg moved on this year, he was able to shine offensively. And I think he scored mm-hmm. over 70 points this year, which was always the knock against Heiskanen in terms of being like a Norris Trophy contender. I've been on the Heiskanen train for a long, long time now. And then maybe Florida's the exception to the rule with the back end, but even Brandon Montour, he's really come to play. Oh, has he been good? Yeah, and then <laughs> they have some big guys, like even a Mark Stahl. Like, you know, he's a veteran guy. And that's the type of player that shows his value in the playoffs yeah. because he's been there before. He's been to a cup final with the New York Rangers. He's been around the block several times. A rag Kogut has placed that playoff type hockey. Yeah. Non-analytic, non-analytic darling players on the back end show yeah. like worth in the playoffs in a lot of ways. And that's yeah. always been like the talk of Ristolainen, right? Yeah. Like a lot of people feel that Ristolainen. seven game series. <laughs> Yeah, like that. And look, you know, he's been in the league for a decade now and he's never really even come close to the playoffs. But a lot of people feel like that's where he would shine in that yeah. in a seven game series. And you look at a, like a guy like Ben Sherrod, like people crap all over Ben Sherrod. They crap all over Steve Eisenman for giving him that four year contract to play with Cider. And I agree that at times I can't believe that Ben Sherrod is playing on a top pair. But then you look at what he did with the Montreal Canadiens in the 2021 Cup run where he's playing alongside yeah. Shea Weber. That's the type of hockey that really kind of gets you through playoff rounds when the game when the games get very tight. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, it, to me, Heiskin, and you know, when you look at it the way he plays, like like he doesn't dangle guys at the blue line, go down the wall, and then, you know, go bar down on a goal. It's not he's not as flashy as some of those other guys, but he is sensational. And we'll see if Ottinger in this round can really up the level of his game to, to what he's capable of, then I think Dallas gives Las Vegas a really good run. Um, I mean, last night, quadruple overtime. There's a disallowed goal in the first overtime. Um, what do you think of the disallowed goal? Because I, I saw Freddie Anderson push to his right first and then not be able to get back to his left. Yeah, was he bumped in there? But the reason why he went to his right was a push by the goaltender, not a push by the player. So I was a little kind of on the fence on this one. I don't, I don't know what goalie interference is, but I have to consider that element of it. 
Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. I have a hard time getting a good read on what's goalie interference and what's not. The one thing I would say is like I guess their point of view was maybe that he was in the crease and that's mm-hmm. space that should be allocated to the goaltender to play however he feels. So I think that maybe that's their thought process, but that's a really chintzy call and it's a ballsy call to make. That was what second OT when that happened? I think it was first. It was the first. So <clears throat> about 12 minutes into the first one, I thought so. And and these are the situations that everyone was very like skeptical of to bring in these reviews because when it is such a consequential circumstance, Easter Conference final and overtime, are you going to make the right call? I mean, I guess it's the right call, maybe based on what I've seen lately, but I'm with you. I find that a bit chintzy, a bit ticky-tack, but I would imagine, I can't say this for certain, but my best guess would be that they feel that he didn't give the goaltender enough space to play his position. Yeah, I thought he was kind of backed in there too by the defender, but again, yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know. But I mean, full marks though to for to Florida for having that disallowed and then be able to just continue to push the pace of the game and and stay in that and and not just collapse after having the disappointment of it being disallowed and then eventually get the game winner. I mean, that's a team. And Paul Maurice done a real good job there. I think that dynamic of Paul Maurice and Rob Brindamore is fascinating. <laughs> that's a great Well, one. he used to be his coach, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's why, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've always liked Paul Maurice, and I, I know that especially back in Winnipeg, I haven't really dug into the numbers with Florida. I think they're actually not too bad this season, but in Winnipeg, they were always criticized for giving up way too many chances, relying on goaltending and being like a high a high um, event team, you know, capitalizing on rush chances and all that. But I got to say, like, just from a spectator's point of view, watching Paul Maurice teams play hockey is so much fun. Like they just work their bag off. They're all about pressuring the defenseman, capitalizing on turnovers. And like the way I saw their four checkers, specifically Bennett and Kachuk and Cousins, just four check the hell out of the Toronto defense and the Boston defense in the first two rounds. I just find it so much fun to watch. And now look, they obviously still do give up their chances and they're being bailed out right now by Sergei Bobrovsky. And I think that for Paul Maurice teams to work, they kind of have to have good, like very good goaltending. And you saw that early in the season that they weren't getting that high end goaltending and they were scratching Klein again to the playoffs all season long. And you even saw it in Winnipeg those years that they really took off as maybe a cup contender when Connor Hullabuck came into his own as an elite level goalie. But just from a spectator point of view, because obviously there are holes to punt, uh, to poke in uh, Maurice's system, I find watching his team so much fun. Yeah, I agree. It's gonna. It'll be interesting to see who if if Carolina's got pushed back in Game Two at home after that loss. Um, those games, you know, Jonesy talked about it on the broadcast. The, those games will take a lot out of you. You know, they do. When you lose that game, it's really tough. When you win that game, it doesn't feel like four overtimes. When you lose yeah. that game, it feels like nine. So, it, it, it you almost I don't even know how a player would feel after that. You, all of that to just lose by one, yeah. you know, is is heartbreaking. Um, Jonesy doing the broadcast for TNT. Um, you surprised that he's going to continue that he's the president of hockey operations for the flyers, but he's going to continue to do the broadcast of the playoffs. Yeah. And then his call, then he's done after the playoffs, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I, I am, you know, that's good on him. You know, when he was on overdrive on TSN radio last week, he said he, tr- he told everyone to keep this as quiet as he could, 
be or as they did rather because he didn't want people to think he wasn't taking his job seriously with TNT calling the broadcast. And I think that's super professional of him. And I know someone with the Flyers in their management that, you know, went up to Jonesy early on in the process and asked him flat out, like, hey, are you in this? And he told them no. And like, you know, he really kept this tight to the vest. And I think that's because he takes his job so seriously with TNT. And, you know, we could get into what we're, we think about, like, the hire and the dynamic of the front office. But I have to say, it's going to suck not having him on hockey broadcast anymore because I really do think he was one of the best in the biz. Yeah, he does a really good job. But, um, you know, over the week and listening to him in that different, you know, in that different space of, talking, you know, being the president of the team and being asked questions about, you know, how you build a team and what his job is and everything. You know, I feel like we've gotten to know a different side of Jonesy or people have gotten to know a different side of him and that he can be serious. And he is a guy that, you know, the things he's saying, you may not agree with all of it, but there's a lot of it to agree with. And he's, um, you know, all the appearances that he's done, he's, I think he's really kind of calmed the waters of the situation, maybe turned a few, you know, cynics into fans type thing of the move. Um, what's been kind of the fallout that you're hearing on your end with with everything that took place with Danny being named, obviously, and then Jonesy. And I think the other element, which we'll talk about after, is Dan Hilferty, because I think he's a big element of this. Yeah, well, I mean, with with Danny, I mean, I think that was the worst kept secret in the world. Like yeah. Danny Rear was always going to be the permanent general manager. I was told that they told him the day of the replacement of Chuck Fletcher when he got the interim tag that he would have it taken off. And I, I was even told that Breer offered to take either or position of president or GM. So that one is not shocking to me in the least. Um, Keith Jones did shock me. I had one person, I wrote about this this week, about a week before the hiring, bring up Jones's name to me and said like, have you heard anything of this? And I was just like, nope. And then this same person said, well, then just best not to report it then. And clearly this person had some kind of inkling of it, but was doing a favor to Jonesy. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. I have some skepticism about the structure of this front office just because it's never been done like this before. It doesn't mean it's not going to work. And I think Anthony Sanfilippo has said this a lot. I think we spoke about it with him when he was on our show that maybe in five, six years from now, teams are saying like, man, like they were really forward thinking, what a progressive approach. And they're going to try and model themselves after the Flyers. Because, you know, if you go back 10, 15, 20 years ago, no team had a president of hockey ops and a GM. Like, hell, you had Pat Quinn as the GM and the coach of the, of the Maple Leafs. Yeah. Like that was regular back in the day. So it's not to say that it's not going to work. I just have questions about were they in a position to take a leap of faith like this? Because, you know, I believe you talked about it with uh, Bill and Brian on Flyers Daily the day of the hire that, like, I don't think you're ever going to see a situation where Jones fires Briere or Briere fires Torts or whatever. It really feels like all three of them are on an even keel with each other. What's the word you use to try something? Triumvirate. A triumvirate. And that's why, like, I don't think that you'll ever see, like, like we know Danny Breer has the final say on hockey ops. I could tell you that Chris Pronger refused the job because he wanted the final say on hockey ops. I think Ray Shiro never really even showed interest in the job because he knew that that was the, the power structure. And again, this isn't to say that it's not going to work. It's just that it's unconventional. Now, 
do the the flip side of it is that I really like the people. I think yeah. Jones, to your point, is way more smarter than he leads on to. And he has an ability to give a pro- he has a pulse for what this team needs. He has a pulse for what the fans want to hear and don't want to hear. He's watched this product up close for the last 20 years. He's been around the team. He knows what the organization values. Danny Briere, I mean, a lot of inexperience in an NHL front office, but he's done, he's grinded. He's worked hard to get where he is. I have all the confidence in the world in Danny Briere. And you bring up Dan Hilferty. And to be honest with you, I think Dan Hilferty's presence has been a breath of fresh air. Because I'm not going to lie, I think Dave Scott was a major problem in this organization. And I don't say that lightly. I think that a lot of the issues that people complained about, specifically Chuck Fletcher having so much power and the senior advisors being leaned on too much, were direct problems of Dave Scott. Now you have Dan Hilferty come in, really delegating this properly, bringing in Val Camillo in more of a prominent public role and I think the way he spoke how he said I'm the last person that you want to ask about hockey I found that Dan Hilferty's presence was so refreshing one because he said all the right things and two because he is kind of like the de facto owner he is the top dog in this organization and the fact that he was able to speak with such candor really kind of impressed me yeah I always said you know people that you work with the the best people to work with are people that know what they don't know they don't pretend to know what they don't know because when that happens you got real problems his thing is to put people together and teams together and that's what he's good at and his strength is not going to be to assess talent and say hey we need to go get a high-end free agent now where we need to make an impact trade now because the teams won eight of an eight of nine games or whatever in december that's not his role but yeah, I I've, I found him very refreshing as well. I know he appeared on 32 Thoughts, and I think I'm going to be speaking with him next week. I know I'm speaking with Danny next week. I'm going over tape, a, a long sit-down with him. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know where it's going to all go. Again, like you said, I think you said it well. I, I like the people, but ultimately the only way to know if this is going to work is when it, when it does or doesn't. <laughs> you know, I you can't you can't handicap it and say it's going to work. It's hard in today's NHL. I know that because you got to, you got to fit those three pieces of the puzzle together of on ice roster, off ice, you know, chemistry, professionalism, and a high account level of accountability and, and the cap situation. So, and, and frankly, got to have a little bit of luck. Yeah, <laughs> to, no, for sure. To really win in today's NHL. No. Yeah. And like, look, I have confidence in the people. And I, and I do, and look, I don't want to hammer this point too much, but I think that, because I always said, like, it goes back to when people wanted Ale Vigneault fired. I said, you could fire AV. He's a part of the problem, but there's a lot bigger fish to fry here. Even Chuck Fletcher, like a lot of people criticize me for being way too easy on Chuck Fletcher. And I said, look, Chuck Fletcher is a problem here, but the problem I think goes higher than that. And I think that Comcast felt the same way because I don't think it's a coincidence that Dan Hilferty was brought in when he was. And I don't think it's a coincidence that all of a sudden the senior advisors are kind of, I don't want to use the word irrelevant, but in a lot of ways, I think they will be moving forward. I think they'll always be part of the organization in some capacity, but their days of having influence on big decision-making are over. And I don't blame the advisors for that. 
Like, I will never blame someone, especially those three, and I'm not grouping Dean Lombardi into this. Like, Bill, Bob, and Paul, I will never say a bad word about them because of the service they gave to the organization and its founder, Ed Snyder. And I don't think it's their fault that Dave Scott leaned on them as his personal counsel to make big hockey decisions. But I think that inadvertently Dave Scott villainized these three organizational icons. And that's what they are because he was asking them when they were more or less retired for big, for counsel on big hockey related decisions. And I think that Dan Hilferty coming in, involving Val Camillo a bit more. Now you're expanding your front office by one guy with Keith Jones in there. You have more of a forward thinking approach in Danny Briere. Like I just, I like the overall approach in terms of the philosophy and maybe the, or not philosophy is the, not the right word, but maybe the new idea model that you're going with fresh blood in a lot of ways. It's just the power structure and the hierarchy that gives me a better trepidation. And again, it's not to say that it's not going to work. It's just that I'm, I'm skeptical because I've never seen it done before. Wow. Um, a, a guy just messaged us and this just came out a minute ago. Uh, we do have some breaking, it's a breaking news sounder. Per Elliot Friedman, Kyle wow. Dubas is not returning as the GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Friedman's tweet one minute ago said the following, hearing Kyle Dubas will not be back as GM of Toronto. Jesus, that is a, that's an enormous move in the hockey world. Wow. wow. Who steps into that position? Jay, thanks for the heads up on that. Appreciate it. Our listener, Jay Sees. Um, that's good work by him. Wow, who moves into that position? Dubas I mean, taking a year off. I mean, what is going? And this is bananas. Yeah, uh, that's crazy. Honestly, I wonder uh, whose like decision my, it was. Was it his or was it Shanahan's? Uh, honestly, Shanahan's? I had heard that he was really shadowed by Shanahan too much. That mm-hmm. Brendan Shanahan kind of had the final decision making power. And maybe it finally got to him. And I think that Dubis wanted more control with his hands on the wheel. And MLS, MLS, he said no. Yeah, because I think Shanahan is the big... Like, I've heard that Brendan Shanahan picks the goal song. Like, Brendan Shanahan really is the final decision maker there. And maybe that's an example of a traditional power structure not working where you get mm-hmm. a GM who maybe is going to be one of the next great ones. Like he certainly made mistakes, but he's still a young guy, but, and you have an overbearing president really kind of, you know, taking over in a lot of unconventional in that unfortunate way, but that's huge, man. Like they have a lot of assistant GMs that they could go with. I mean, Haley Wickenheiser has been there for a bit. I wonder if they maybe try and take a progressive approach by naming the first ever woman GM. I know Jason Spetz is in there. Brandon Pridham, who I think he actually was one of the guys who wrote the CBA. And now he's getting interviewed for the Calgary job if uh, per Frank Saravalli. But uh, that's a major, major shift. That's for sure. Yeah. What a huge move. Um, again, Elliot Friedman saying that he's hearing Kyle Dubas will not be back as the GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Unbelievable. Wow. We'll see where that goes. And get to your, uh, you got your um, bachelor party weekend for a buddy of yours. Um, Good luck for your liver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will be on SiriusXM NHL Network Radio tomorrow. So okay. maybe I'll be with Dave? Able to, 
yet with Dave and Ryan Payton. I think DB's on vacation in France. So I'll try and mask uh, my alcohol consumption at that point. But if I don't get brought back home in a wheelbarrow, uh, we'll be talking next week. No doubt. All right. That's episode 66 of Stick to Hockey Live, everybody. Uh, We'll join you next week. We'll uh, update on the conference finals, latest on the Flyers, and obviously the situation around Toronto. So thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Leave us a five-star rating and review. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure you subscribe, hit the bell. That'll let you know when our next episode is up. And we appreciate it. And everybody have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week. It's going